0: The reading we've just heard, the Gospel reading, uh, contains a couple of the famous sayings and stories. The story of Nicodemus, well I prefer that one, and uh, the infamous saying John 3.16, uh, which appears at every major sporting event and cultural event and a few events as well, Uh, and which strangely leaves out John 3.17. So I'm sure if I asked you, you could give me the gist of John 3.16, because you've just heard us. But if I was to ask you, what does John 3.17 say? You should all be able to answer me, because you've just heard (laughs) us. And you were all paying deep attention. It says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So it goes... Is the other half of John 3.16, but for some reason we keep leaving it out. As we read John's Gospel, like every Gospel, we have to remember that John is not an historian. He's not interested in history. He's not interested in writing a biography about Jesus so that we know a bit more about Jesus. He's a theologian, and probably John is more of a theologian than any of the others. And so what he is doing is writing a book of theology, And he's using events in Jesus' life to weave his theology around. So I'm sure that there was a conversation between a leader of the Judeans. Remember that word Jew is better translated as Judean. So he's a Judean elite. And one of the themes that runs through all the Gospels is the conflict between the Judean elite from Jerusalem and this peasant from Nazareth and the rebel rousing he's doing. So he's one of the Judean elite. Uh, But was the conversation anything like what John records? Probably not. Uh, But what John does is take that event and help us understand who Jesus is. He's writing Christology. So if you ever do theology courses you can say well I do Christology because I read the Gospels. And so, what is he trying to do in this piece? Well, right before this, there's a little bit about all those people who are super impressed with Jesus because he's a miracle worker and they really like his miracles. And Jesus is saying, actually, the miracles are kind of a. They're not that important. And in some ways, they get in the way, and you need to get beyond the miracles. And we will see. Again, in John's Gospel, people who, when they get beyond the miracles and get to see what Jesus is really about, go, oh, that is way too hard. We were just here for the good times and the miracles. We're out of here. And so, Nicodemus could well be one of those, because he starts off this thing with, we know you're a man from God because you did these super cool things. So, Jesus has this conversation with Here's a tricky question, which some of you might know. What do you do if your computer, you're working away at your computer, and it suddenly just freezes on you, or you uh, doesn't do what it's supposed to do, or it slows down, or the program won't open as it's supposed to? What's the first thing you should do, apart from say rude words to it? Turn it off. Reboot it. Exactly. Now I want you to hold that image of rebooting in your heads. In Jesus' time, and in lots of places around the world today still, the family that you were born into determined pretty much your life. It determined who your family was. That still does that. It determined what your role in the family was and what your role in life was. So if you were to born into a family of carpenters and you were a male... Uh, you would be a carpenter, kind of like Jesus. That was it. End of story. Didn't have much choice out of that. Uh, it determined the honour that your family had, and therefore the honour that you had in Jesus' place, and that determined we were in the pecking order of things, so who could boss you around and who you could boss around. And it also determined who your neighbour was. And if you remember, your neighbour is the person that you love as you love yourself. And there were some very strict definitions around who your neighbor was. And that depended on your family of origin. But Jesus says, in answer to Nicodemus, you should be born anew. Or born from above. The Greek means both things. And it depends on which version of the Bible you read as to which one they've gone for. So that was born from above. Uh, But if you read another version, they would say born anew. But in fact, both hold true, and the Greek is great where the English fails because it actually holds both of those meanings at the same time. So what does it mean to be born anew? Well, it means you are born into a new family. You are rebooted, restarted. Life starts again with a different set of options, a different set of options for how you will spend your life, a different place in that family, a different place in the pecking order of society and a different group of people who you should treat as your neighbour and therefore love as you love yourself. And who is it, this new family? It is all those who are born from above, all those who are children of God. Now, actually, that's pretty big. In fact, at the broader scale, that's everyone. Everyone. So it redefines your role, who your family is, your honor. Your honor is now not dependent on your family, but it's dependent on God, because you come from heaven above. And it redefines who your neighbor is. So let's just pause and think about it those who were gathered around and heard the conversation, this conversation actually took place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Think about what they would have thought in terms of their society. As Jesus said, you are to be born anew, rebooted, born from above. Think about what John's hearers, those who were part of his community, for whom this gospel was primarily prison. What they would have understood and heard as they heard Jesus say, you are to be born anew, rebooted, restarted, born from above. And what does it say to us Society we live in when we hear we are rebooted, born anew, born from above. But later on, Jesus says that. Believe will have eternal life. Now, mostly in our world, we understand belief to be a kind of cognitive thing. It's where we give intellectual assent to a series of ideas or dogmas. And so in Protestant Christianity, there has been a set of ideas, a set of dogmas, a set of beliefs that one had to give assent to, and when you believed in those, set of beliefs, then you had eternal life. That's how it's functioned. Anglicans have kind of sat on the edge of that a bit, but pretty much that's how it's functioned. But in the Greek, and in Jesus' time, the word belief really wasn't about intellectual assent. It was about trust and loyalty. Trust and loyalty. We heard in the Genesis reading about Abraham. He showed Trust and loyalty. So much trust that he was willing to put his life on the line and to leave all his social security networks and to go to a strange land where he and his family well, he could have died a lonely old man. It is through trust and loyalty that we are to See who our new family of origin is. It is through trust and loyalty that we are to live as new members in a new society as God's children. So the question is how we grow in trust and loyalty. Luckily, this week's theme for the Lenten discussions is how we do that. I wonder how that happened. Well, I might be pushing it a bit. But anyway, This week's theme is prayer, and I would suggest that prayer is the way that we grow in trust and loyalty. So I'm going to show some quotes about prayer, or some ideas about prayer, and I want you to sit and to look at these ideas about prayer, and I want you to think about which ones stand out for you, which you don't like, which are brand new, which kind of match your idea of prayer. Can I give you a moment just to turn to the person or the people next to you? And any reflections from what you've just read? I really like history, and uh, so if I could, I'd just read history books all the time, really, and uh, particularly about the Mongols. But um, if you read the lives of saints, the the thing that stands out that is always there is their life of prayer. And in some ways, that can be quite daunting for us because we can look at these saints and go, well, they're saints. That's why they have lives of prayer. They're so saintly. But I think actually the reason they're saints is the other way around. They were saints because, first of all, they prayed. And through their prayer, they were changed prayer was the starting point. They were invited to pray, they prayed, their prayer changed them. That's the same invitation for each one of us to be changed through a life of prayer. Now at this point, it would be great if I could, from my vast experience of the hours that I've spent on prayer, talk about all of that. And I have read a lot of books about prayer and if you go into my office, my study you actually see a lot of books on prayer uh, on the shelves and I've done a lot of talks about prayer. In my rule of life I have to pray every day. Pray the community obedience. Praying for my brother and sister Franciscans. But I have to say that I still struggle with this life of prayer. The truth is even for me, stuff gets in the way. People want to see me, I'm running late, uh, there's urgent stuff that needs to be sorted out in the office. Stuff gets in the way all the time. And even, even when I'm sitting in the chair, as well it's a comfy chair in the, in the chapel at the back, because I hated sitting on those hard wooden things. I was too worried about the fact I was sitting on a hard wooden thing. Uh, And I'm trying to be still and quiet. Uh, If I'm tired, I'm still and quiet and then asleep. Or I'm still and quiet and then I'm thinking about what I need to do when I finish being still and quiet. Or about those stupid people that cut me off on the right drive here. Or the sermon that I'm going to preach next Sunday. Or the electoral synod that's coming up and I go, no, I'm supposed to be still and quiet. The truth is, prayer can be quite hard work, even for those of us who are paid to pray. (laughs) (laughs) And for a long time I felt guilty about that. I felt guilty that I was not doing as well as other people. But I came to the point of realising that that actually was pretty counterproductive. There's no point feeling guilty about prayer. Prayer is an invitation. Prayer is an invitation for us to be with God, to pay attention to what God is doing in our lives. And if I'm too busy to do that, then now I mostly feel disappointment that I've not done that. Sometimes I still feel a little bit guilty, but mostly I'm trying to get rid of that, because that's not overly helpful. It's about I'm disappointed that I haven't done it. And I hear the invitation again to stop and pay attention. But if you wanted a life of prayer, you would have become a monk. Well, there is that, but actually all of us need to pray. And uh, and even if you look at the active saints like St. Francis who is renowned for the crazy stuff he did did, and for uh, how he changed European society, all of that came out of his prayer life, because prayer was important. One of the definitions or descriptions of prayer that I like is that it's a a loving relationship between us and God. And I think that gives us some um, helpful clues about some of the things we need to keep in mind when we think about how we pray. The first is that we actually need to set aside time for that. Some people say, oh, well, I'm just like spontaneous prayer. Well, if I relied on spontaneous meetings with Bonnie, she and I would never have got, much, got very far down the track with our relationship. Sure, we met initially accidentally, but after that, we, once we actually started going out, we actually had to make dates with each other. We would say, we will meet at this place and at this time. And that's what we need to do to actually build in some times, dates with God. And the second part of that is the place. Our bodies are funny things and our minds are funny things. They keep associating certain places with certain activities. Like if you lie down on a bed and think, I'm going to pray now, the chances are your mind and your body's going, This is the place where I go to sleep. And shortly after that, you're asleep, strangely. Or, there's lots of other places where we, like at the dining, the table where you eat, if you try to pray there, actually your body thinks that's a place for eating, not for praying. What are you doing here? Uh, if you try to pray in the chair that you sit and watch television in, the bodies and the minds in the watching television frame of mind, not in the praying frame of mind. It's a really helpful thing to have a certain place to go to pray. And that's the only thing you do in that place. So that your body and your mind goes, oh, we're in this place. Oh, well, this is about prayer. It doesn't make it easy, it just makes it easier. And likewise, postures. Postures are really important. Um, And so having a posture that you have for prayer, which is not a posture you're in for other things helps the body and the mind know that this is that activity. Which is why some people sit cross-legged on the floor with straight backs, which I don't do, or sit on chairs with straight backs with their feet flat on the floor uh, and upright and in a position of alertness because, well, the only time I ever sit anything like that is when I'm praying and the rest of the time I'm kind of slouched and leaning back. Even when I'm driving, apparently, people get in the car after me and say... I feel like I'm going to go to sleep quite soon because the seat's so far back. So having particular postures is very important. Making a time, having a place, having a posture, and the beginning by just stopping. Not jumping straight into it, but actually just stopping and being still for a moment. Being aware of where you are, the noises around you, how you're feeling, what's going on inside of you, and then bringing all of that into prayer. Because that's the first thing prayer is. Prayer is about bringing, bringing who we are, everything that we are, not just our thoughts, but our rational and non-rational, our body, our soul, our physical, our non-physical, all of that. Is part of what we bring to prayer, our whole being. The second part of prayer is about listening. And there are a number of ways we can listen. One of the ways is by praying scripture, another way is to uh, pay attention to our dreams. I'm not so good at that. Um, another way is to journal about what's happening in your life. Another way is to use the daily examiner. There are lots of ways that we can stop and listen. And then the third thing that prayer is about is responding. What do you do with all of that? Sometimes you use words, but sometimes we're called to action. And then lastly, the last part of prayer is just about being with God. That's not about words. That is simply about, as one of those quotes says, the heart of the lover being held by the lover of hearts. It is being still and in God. No words. That's usually the bit where I start thinking about the sermon on Sunday or something like that, but keeping that discipline is really important. In the end, what we're trying to do with our prayer life is to establish a heartbeat, a heartbeat that keeps us alive. And sometimes the heartbeat is a little irregular, and so when you have an irregular heartbeat, you pay attention to that and you make it regular again. You don't feel guilty about that, but you hear the invitation. After we've had morning tea this morning, we're going to have another discussion about this. So clearly the theme is about prayer. Uh, So I invite you, if you want to talk more about that, to join us. But for now, I invite you to to reflect on your own understanding and experience of prayer. To notice how you bring, listen, respond and be with God. And I invite you to use this link as a time to pay attention your life of prayer, and to hear the invitation to be with God, to establish the heartbeats. Now at this point we would normally say a creed, but I thought we would do something completely different today. And I invite you to turn to page 157. Because in the end it is the Holy Spirit that enables all of this to happen. The Holy Spirit working in and through us. And one of our great poets, James K. Baxter, wrote a song for the Holy Spirit. So I invite us to stay seated and to pray the song of the Holy Spirit together. but